Welcome to Huntersville Lutheran Sermon Webcast. We invite you to join us here for worship every Sunday at 10 a.m. Find out more at huntersvillelc.com. Thank you for joining us today. They called him the King of Kings. More accurately, though, he called himself the King of Kings, and, and the title kind of stuck. This man is, is Alexander the Great, and for all intents and purposes, he had every reason to be called the King of Kings. Alexander was the son of Philip II, the king of Macedonia, and, and as the son of the king, he enjoyed a lot of benefits, right? Like any royalty does, he enjoyed this cushy life, living in the lap of luxury. He was, he was tutored personally and privately by the great Greek philosopher named Aristotle. But living in the lap of luxury as the king's son didn't last very long because in 336 BC, Alexander's father, Philip II of Macedon, was assassinated at a wedding. And this once king's son now became the king of kings. Now when, when uh, Alexander inherited his father's kingdom, I'll step out of the way so you guys can see it. Um, the, when Alexander inherited his father's kingdom, this is what it looked like. It was, it was small. It was very small. But it didn't take long for Alexander for want to, to want to fix this problem. Because shortly after Alexander rose to power, he, he went on this unprecedented military campaign. And he expanded his kingdom from the northeast part of Germany all the way to the northwest part of India. And one of the most impressive things about this military conquest that lasted over 10 years was the fact that no matter who Alexander the Great, the king of kings, went up against, he never lost. He was never once defeated. And many historians consider him to be one of the most successful and one of the greatest military commanders to ever live. This guy, Alexander the Great, he had every right to be called the king of kings. But it wasn't just his military conquests that, or because of his military conquests that people eventually called him the king of kings. Now, Alexander founded nearly 20 cities, one of which bears his namesake, Alexandria in Egypt. He spread Hellenistic culture across the known world. Alexander even founded a, a, like a syncretistic, a, a mixed religion of sorts called Greco-Buddhism. This guy, Alexander the Great, he was one of the greatest kings to ever live. He had every right to be called the king of kings, but this king of kings had an issue like every other king does. He was mortal, and his reign wouldn't last forever. In 323 BC, Alexander contracted a fever, and 10 days later, the king of kings died. And when the king of kings died, so did his empire. After his death, Alexander's empire was torn apart by civil war. It was wrecked by people who wanted to have the same power that Alexander did and who hated the, the rulers that had stepped in place of Alexander the Great. Turns out, after Alexander died, people realized that that he wasn't quite the king that they needed. Sure, Alexander, while he was living, he was the king that everybody wanted. He expanded their borders to the largest kingdom in the known world. He brought them wealth and prosperity and pomp and circumstance and political clout. They were a nation to be feared. But after Alexander died, people realized he may have been the king that people wanted, but he wasn't the king that people needed. Because what Macedonia needed was a king to bring bring peace to their empire and not bring war to others. What they needed was a, a king who was going to rule over their empire and not conquer, na conquer their neighbors. This king of kings, he may have been the king that everybody wanted, but he wasn't the king that people needed. You fast forward 300 years from the time that Alexander died and you go to a city that used to belong to the, the vast empire of Alexander and you find a group of people on the side of a mountain who are acclaiming a new man to be the king of kings. The city was Jerusalem, the people were the Jews, and the man that they were acclaiming as king of kings was Jesus. Standing on the mountainside, uh, on the Mount of Olives, uh, near Bethphage, 
the shouts that you would hear ringing out from the people that day was a, it was a word, Hosanna. It was a Hebrew word that means, Lord, save us. And those people on the mountainside that day, they were shouting, Hosanna, and acclaiming this man, Jesus, to be the long-promised king who was going to rescue them. But as those shouts dissipate into the mountain air, there's a, there's a question that lingers like a thick fog on the side of the mountain, a question that needs to be, that needs to be, no, it begs to be, to be explored. Were those Jews that day who were shouting, Hosanna, Lord, save us to Jesus, were they looking for the king that they wanted? Or were they looking for the king that they needed? See, at this point in Israel's history, uh, Israel had been, or the Jews had been reduced to a, a second-class tier of citizens in their own country. They were the scourge of the Roman Empire who was in charge of Jerusalem at the time. And they had no king, they had no power, they had no political clout, they had no influence whatsoever, even in their own city. And the only reason that they got along with the Romans who were in Jerusalem at the time was because they had to. It was a long and bloody history between these two people, between the Romans and the Jews. And the Jews had always come out on top, but they long, or the Jews had always come out on the losing end of things. But they longed for all of this to be reversed. They longed for their, their nation to be restored to its former glory. They longed for their, uh, their, the, their city's name, for Jerusalem, for Israel, to be a city that was once again feared throughout the known world. And so then Jesus shows up on Jerusalem's doorstep, and, and what do they do? They cry, Hosanna. Jesus, save us. Make our lives better. Jesus, rescue us from these ruthless Romans. Jesus, restore our nation to its former glory. Jesus, save us. Hosanna. Were they looking for the king that they wanted? Or were they looking for the king that they needed? Now, don't get me wrong. There were some people on that mountain that day who truly recognized that Jesus came to do far more than that. But many, many people that day who were shouting Hosanna, they were looking for a king that resembled Alexander the Great. They were looking for a king that resembled King David. And, and they wanted this king to, the king of kings, to restore Israel's glory to the way it was during the reign of King David. They wanted a king like Solomon who was going to expand their borders to the way that it was during Solomon's reign. You see, these Jews, they were looking for an earthly king to do things for their earthly lives. But the problem is, there is a vast chasm that exists between wants and needs. And that day, there were a whole lot of people who were looking for the king of kings that they wanted. But really, what they should have been looking for was the king that they needed. This wants versus need problem that the Jews had with Jesus, it, it's not a problem that's unique to them. Take a look at the modern religious scene today in America, and, and you see this is a pretty prevalent problem. I mean, after all, that's what, that's what modern religion and cultural Christianity is, is all about. It's about creating the kind of King Jesus that you want, creating the kind of God that you want. Modern religion says that you can find and create this kind of piecemeal God that, that says and does whatever you want him to, that fits into whatever lifestyle you are, have adopted and that you are living. Modern religion says that you can create a kind of God that, that will tell you you, will, you can never do anything wrong, to create the kind of God who will only offer you praise without rebuke, who will only give you adoration without discipline. I mean, and this is an appealing God. This is the kind of God that people want, a God that never tells them no, a God that never tells them they can't or they shouldn't or they won't. And unfortunately, cultural Christianity, it takes it one step further and tells you that you truly can create the kind of king of kings that you want. And I suppose I should define what I mean by cultural Christianity, right? Cultural Christianity is, is the kind of Christianity that takes a subjective look and uh, path to objective truth. In, in other words, what they do is they take the truths of Scripture, truths like you hear this morning, 
truths that you read in your Bible. And what they will do is they will take everything that they agree with and they will say, yes, this fits us. They create this kind of God for themselves, but, but everything that's harsh, everything that's condemning, everything that, that seems exclusive, they get rid of. They kind of Ben Franklin their Bibles, if you know what I mean by that. And so cultural Christianity, they will say, you can, you can make whatever kind of king of kings you want. You can turn Jesus into whatever kind of king that you want him to be. You can create the king that will make your life easier. You can create the kind of king that will make you healthier, wealthier, more popular, more successful. He'll get rid of all your earthly problems, right? And if he doesn't right away, if he doesn't immediately, then, then you're, the problem isn't with the king that you've created. The problem is with your own heart. The problem is that you aren't believing faithfully enough. You aren't praying hard enough. Your faith isn't ardent enough. This whole idea of cultural Christianity and, and modern religion, that you can create whatever kind of King Jesus you want, poses two monstrous problems. Number one, it has nothing to do with who the King of Kings, Jesus, actually is and what the King of Kings actually came to do for you and me. It has everything to do with man. It's completely man-centered. It's completely centered on and focused on what you want, what man wants this king to be, and what man wants this king to do. The other problem is this, that this idea that you can create whatever kind of king Jesus you want is incredibly appealing to Bible-believing Christians like everybody here this morning. You and I are so easily allured into, into wanting to create the kind of God that we want, into wanting to create the kind of Jesus, the king Jesus that we want. And then we go out and look for him. We want the kind of King Jesus who's going to solve all of the earthly problems that you and I face. Because the reality is, if you look at your life right now, you and I face a whole lot of issues. And we want Jesus to rescue us from them. To save us from our difficult marriage. To save us and rescue us out from underneath the mountain of debt that we carry around. To, to bring us out from the loneliness and the ensuing sadness. To just make life easier. This is the kind of King Jesus that is so tempting to our sinful nature. Because we do face all of these problems. And look, if this is the kind of king of kings that you want, the kind of king that fixes all of your earthly problems, that makes you healthy and wealthy and wise, then you know what you turn Jesus into? You turn him into a man no different than Alexander the Great or King David or King Solomon. You actually, you do something even a step worse than that. You turn him into the biggest fraud who has ever lived. Because if Jesus only came to fix your earthly problems, then what has he really accomplished? Moses says in Psalm 90 that the days of our life are 70 or 80 years if we have the strength. And what good is it if those 70 or 80 years are, are filled with complacency and ease and contentment if, if well, we miss out on 10,000 times 10,000 years in eternity? And we would certainly miss out on them if King Jesus only came to be the King of Kings who fixes and solves all our earthly problems. But the reality is that Jesus didn't come to be the King of Kings who fixes all of your earthly problems. He didn't come to be the kind of King that established an earthly kingdom and sat on an earthly throne and held a scepter and wore a crown, of, a crown of jewels and built up a city for his people to live and to dwell and to safety. No, Jesus came to be a different kind of king. He came to be the king of kings, not that we look for, not that we want, but the king of kings that you and I so desperately need. The reason that God sent his son, this king of kings, was because long ago there was another king that had ascended the throne of mankind's heart. Ever since the, the moment that Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, this king has held a powerful sway and ruled over the hearts of every man and woman and child that has ever and will ever lived. This king is called sin and this king is incredibly powerful. He's the kind of king that issues a degree and our weak and sinful hearts bow down. 
bow down in lying and in hatred, in lust and lovelessness and pride and, and disdain for our fellow man. This king, he's the problem of, he's the source of all of the problems that you and I face in this life. All the problems that you have in your marriage and every one of your relationships, the problems you have in your job and with your money, the problems of loneliness and sadness and, and discontentment. But this kind of king, king named Sin, he does much more than just create earthly problems for you. He creates a, a really big problem with God. Because this king stands opposed to God in every way, shape, and form. And he tries to isolate you from your God in a city of sin that is walled up, that is walled around you with indifference and to create this false sense of security in your life that it doesn't matter what you do or how you live, that it will all be okay. And it is for this very reason that God needed to send a king. Not the king of kings that we look for, but the king of kings that we so desperately need. The whole reason that God sent his son, the king of kings, was to be for us what we could never be on our own, to be the righteous king who stands in our place, upon whose lips there was never a sinful phrase, and in whose heart there was only grace and truth and love. And the reality is you and I so desperately, desperately need this king, even if we don't realize it. It's because God sent this king, not the king that we want, but the king that we need, that Zechariah tells us that we need to rejoice and that we need to shout. Not just because that God sent this king, but also because of what this king did for us. Look at what, look at what Zechariah says. And this is the prophecy that, that Matthew quotes in part in Matthew 21. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Zechariah calls us to rejoice and to shout because this king came. The whole reason that God sent this king, the king of kings, the king that we need to ride into Jerusalem was to remove every ounce of fear from your hearts, the fear that haunts your life, the fear that is caused by sin. And, and when that king of kings removes that fear from your heart, the only thing left for your heart and for my heart to do is to rejoice and rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly, people of God. This is also why Zechariah says that we need to shout for joy. Because when that king of kings rode into Jerusalem, he didn't do so to usurp Pilate's power. He didn't do so to, to ascend an earthly throne. No, that king was a different kind of king who was wholly and only concerned with your spiritual well-being. He rode into Jerusalem to defeat every source of evil that torments your soul, who seeks to rule in your heart those wicked tyrants of sin and death and the devil. And when those enemies are defeated, when those enemies are gone, the only thing left for God's people to do is unleash the joyous shout of victory, Hosanna in the highest. See, when Jesus, he, when he entered into Jerusalem as this king of kings, he sure didn't look like it. He didn't look like the kind of king that you and I would expect. He didn't look like the kind of king that the world would look for. No, he was meek and he was unassuming. He was gentle and he rode on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. But don't be mistaken about who that king was and what that king came to do because he may have looked meek, he may have looked gentle, but he came into that city as a king who was prepared for war. It was not going to be a war that was fought against the people who derided him or the Pharisees who had him arrested. It was going to be a war against Satan and all of the powers of darkness. It was a war that was fought and needed to be fought to its completion. There was no option for peace talks. There was no, no settlement for a truce. It was a battle that needed to be fought to the end. And Jesus, the king of kings that we need, he was going to fight that battle in the most improbable way. Not with the weapons of man or the might of armies, but through his suffering 
and is dying. This would be the greatest battle that the world would ever see. And it would ultimately end with this king of kings that we need hanging on the cross. And there on the cross, when Jesus gave up his life, it may have looked like he was defeated. It may have looked like the light of all hope was extinguished. But that moment on the cross was a moment of complete and utter victory. And it's on that moment at the cross, when Jesus gave up his life, that the cry of God's people that echoes through eternity, Hosanna, Lord, save us, when it was completely and utterly fulfilled. And now for God's New Testament people who live in the light of what this King of Kings did for us, That phrase takes on a whole new meaning. It is now our triumphal cry for victory. Hosanna in the highest. When this king of kings died on the cross, he did something unique for you and me. He opened up a kingdom. A kingdom that is prepared for all of you, all of God's faithful people. And it wasn't going to be a kingdom of this world, but it was going to be a kingdom that God promises will conquer the world. And it is in that kingdom that Jesus, the King of Kings that we need, is ruling over all things to ensure that the promise that he made you in the waters and the word of baptism will be fulfilled. That you truly are a son and a daughter of the living God. And that kingdom where he is ruling is yours forever. It's also in that kingdom where he is anxiously waiting to bring you home, to be with him. And so we say, blessed is the king who came in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of kings who will come again in the name of the Lord. I mean, those two phrases, they sum up the entire season of Advent, don't they? In Advent, we prepare our hearts as God's people to celebrate the coming of the first coming of this king of kings that we need, taking on flesh and blood to be the king to save us. But as God's New Testament people, we also prepare our hearts during Advent earnestly and fervently and faithfully for the time when Jesus will come again. And so we say Hosanna with all of God's people from the past, from the present, and from the future. Look, Jesus, he may not have looked like an earthly king. He may not have been the kind of king that you want or even that you often look for. But Jesus, that baby born in Bethlehem, the king who rode into Jerusalem, the king who died for you, the king who rose triumphantly from the grave, the king who ascended in all glory, glorious majesty, the king who promises he will come again. This is the king that you and I need today, tomorrow, every day. This Jesus, he is the king of kings.